0: Good morning. All right. Good morning. morning. All right. That's better. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I know we won't see each other again until we have uh, celebrated that grand feast. Uh, I know a lot of our college students have already vacated the city to go back to their respective homes. And so, There's a little void uh, from having them gone as well. I know many, probably other families have already made trips because I know a lot of kids are out of school this whole week. Um, And I'm thinking of as you approach this time, Thanksgiving obviously is a time where we are thankful for things. We take note of the blessings of life that we have, the things that we're thankful for. So my question that I want to start you off with today is, um, what is it that you're actually thankful for? And I would bet that at the top of that list, it doesn't start off with suffering. But our passage here today leaves us with this conflicting view of we should be thankful for times of suffering. And actually, we should be cognizant of being thankful in the midst of difficulty and adversity. So I've named today's sermon, uh, Hey, Taking a Beating and Loving Life, Okay. Uh, Because that's actually what happens with the apostles here. They end up getting flogged uh, because they continue to disrespect the Sanhedrin's request that they not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they already said once, hey, should we listen to God or should we listen to you? And there was no really response to that. And of course, they went back and they're like, God's told us to do this. We're going to do it. And so they've been arrested again. Uh, You remember, this is where they got let out of there. And um, the angel came in, opened the door. And uh, they go back to the same place, preaching the same message again. So today, let's start off with a question that we can reflect on before we get into the text. What reasons do you find yourself suffering for? What reasons do you find yourself suffering? So we all suffer in different ways, various ways, various degrees. What is it you would say that you would calculate or in your mind attribute your suffering to? Is it A, getting old? Like you're just like, you know, I'm getting old and I've got pain in places. I didn't even know I had places. And it's just like gets worse and worse year after year. So maybe some of the suffering that you go through is through that. Maybe you can't do some of the things that you used to love to do. And and that's maybe a a piece of suffering for you. Maybe it's uh, from making dumb mistakes. Anybody ever been there? Uh, Sometimes we suffer from the dumb mistakes we made as kids, as teenagers, as young adults, not saving money, whatever it may be, and now we're suffering because of dumb mistakes we made in the past. Uh, Maybe it's from trusting people too much. We've been in situations before where a family member or a friend, we trusted them. We thought that there was uh, something there that we could trust, and yet maybe they took advantage of that situation, and you're suffering because of someone else's lack of being faithful. Uh, What about bad habits? Yeah, many of us suffer because of bad habits, right? Whatever it was, maybe you developed one as a child you couldn't get away from as a teenager. Maybe you've got a bad habit now that you're struggling to try and get rid of and, and you're suffering through that. Sometimes we suffer because of good habits, right? You started going to the gym, and everything's sore, and it hurts, (laughs) and you're having to give up time, maybe get up earlier than you used to, and that's kind of suffering as well. So there are all kinds of ways, and for all different kinds of reasons, that we could find ourselves, quote, suffering. But in today's text, we're going to look at the apostles' experience as they begin to uh, really experience more negative consequences for their being faithful to the call of God in their life to preach the message of the gospel. And as they experience more and more persecution, they celebrate it, they embrace it. Uh, we see this growing persecution as well in the book of Acts. Remember the first time they were reprimanded, uh, they were in prison, let go. Next time we're going to see they're going to be imprisoned, beaten and letting go. And then we're going to be very quickly here to the point of Stephen, which becomes the first martyr in the book of Acts and he dies. And so we see it just growing as the book continues to move forward. The intensity of the persecution grows as well. So let's jump into our passage today and look at The first couple of verses here verse 33 when they heard this they were enraged and wanted to kill them but a pharisee in the council named gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while so look at verse 33 again when they heard this heard what well, remember, they had arrested these guys because of the popularity that they were gaining with the people. Because Peter and the other apostles were out uh, in the, amongst the marginalized people, the just the regular folk of that day. And, and they were extending blessings through the power of the Holy Spirit by healing people and restoring people. And they were preaching the gospel this whole time. And remember, the passage told us previously that they were becoming jealous, that the religious leaders were becoming jealous of the apostles. Why? Well, because they were gaining and garnering the favor of the people. Not only that, they were probably increasing their workload because as we were reminded, there are in Levitical law offerings that have to be presented whenever someone is healed of leprosy specifically is a very long process. But all the peace offerings and Thanksgiving offerings, those are all piling up around the altar and they've got to get to sacrificing them and going through all the rituals. And so they're out there doing all the work while the apostles out there gaining all the favor and they They became jealous of their power, of their notoriety. And so they wanted to do something about this. So they arrested them. And then as they arrested them in the middle of the night, an angel came, opened the door, and apparently closed the door and locked it again because when they come in the next day to get them, it says the guards were still standing there, the door was closed and locked, but when they opened it, there was no one in there. What does that tell us? That we know angels are adults because if they were teenagers or younger, they would have left the door wide open and unlocked, okay? So we know there's some kind of like faithfulness there. They, they know how to be responsible. So the, the angel lets them out. Where do they go once they're released? They go back to the same place they were arrested the day before and do the same thing that they were arrested for, preach the gospel. So in the story, you begin to see the tables being turned. The ones who should be fearful are not fearful, Uh, The ones who should have the power don't have the power. The ones who shouldn't have the power have the power. The ones who should be afraid are not afraid. And the ones who shouldn't be afraid because they have all the power are the ones who fear in this passage. So. The apostles went right back to uh, preaching, obviously not afraid. The Sanhedrin assembles the next day. They don't find the apostles. When they finally find them out there preaching in the temple courtyard, they finally get them in and they address them and they said, we thought we told you not to preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter goes into this long diatribe again about just telling them, hey, no, this is what we told you. Remember, we said, hey, uh, is it better to listen to you or to listen to God? Because God has called us to do this and we're going to continue to do this because this is the message of the gospel. You are the ones who have opposed God. You are the ones who stood against him. You killed the one that he sent. But God was sovereign. It was a part of his plan all along. And so they began to talk about the gospel that they've been preaching. That leads us to where that they're so enraged at what Peter said. I wanna show you again what Peter said. Look at uh, chapter five, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered. This is what they said, you know, before our passage we're looking at today. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are Witnesses, don't forget that word, witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So again, who should we obey? God, not man. We are obeying God, and that's why we have the Holy Spirit, because we have obeyed God, and God is using us to proclaim this message to the world. That's what infuriated them, that speech right there. Literally, the word in the original language means they were sawn in two. They were cut to the core. They were beside themselves. You know that's what that term means, being cut in two is to be beside yourself. So that's what infuriated them. And so what was their response? Death, death to these men. They didn't like Peter's answer. These apostles were dangerous. They were preaching a message that's gonna lead the people astray, talking about all this resurrection and forgiveness of sins and this eternity and this savior and Messiah. These are messages we don't want in the public because that will cause a riot and that will put us in a bad place with Rome. This might have been the death of the apostles, except there was one voice of reason that came into this council. Look at verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. So let's stop for a moment, and let's figure out a little bit about this guy that we've now been introduced to, this guy by the name of Gamaliel. Now, again, I don't wanna go into what we've already talked about before, but just in case anyone wasn't here, I wanna paint the picture. In the Sanhedrin, you have opposing perspectives. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the ones who are actually in power. They have the political power, the voting power. They have the connection to Rome. But the Pharisees have the popularity power. They are very popular with the people. So the the Sadducees have to keep the Pharisees somewhat happy because even though they could rule and they have the favor of Rome, if you lose all the people, you lose your influence, right? So they need the Pharisees because the Pharisees carry the sway of the people. So we know that Gamaliel is one of the leaders of the Pharisees. He's not a Sadducee. He's a Pharisee. Sadducees, remember, have opposing theological viewpoints as well. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in a physical Messiah who's going to come to earth. They believe that the law will be the Messiah, that ultimately, if you obey the law, that salvation will come to you through God, okay? So they only believe in the first five books of the Bible, whereas uh, the... Pharisees believe in the entire Old Testament. We would actually call that the Sadducees believe in the written word or the written tradition and the Pharisees believe in the oral tradition. So that's what would encompass all of the prophets and everything. Okay. So because of this they had these conflicted views. However, the Pharisees, because they believe in resurrection and because they believe in the whole Old Testament, and they do believe in a physical Messiah who is coming, that may be why Gamaliel has a little bit of compassion towards these Christians, because their theological views are actually closer to the Pharisees than it is to the Sadducees, okay? So maybe this is why he steps up in this moment. I know there's probably some other things as well, but Gamaliel was a minority in the Sanhedrin, Okay. The Sadducees, again, were known for listening to the Pharisees because of the influence that they had with the people. Um, And so, again, we have this conflict that's happening here. And I think there's a lot that's being said about Gamaliel that gives us an idea of, of the position that he had. Gamaliel was, if you've ever heard of Hillel... He was the son of Hillel. So in other words, he now is one who carries on this tradition. Hillel was a very respected rabbi. Gamaliel becomes one of the most respected rabbis. He's often referred to in many of the writings, the extra biblical writings of the Jewish people. Uh, He had a heavy influence on the direction of Jewish life during this first century. Matter of fact, when this guy died, Uh, This is what people wrote about him. This is actually from the Mishnah. It says, When Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. Wow. This is a guy who was a strong influence for the Pharisees. Of course, they didn't really trust the Sadducees. And so when he died, they felt like a lot of good wisdom and influence died with him. What else do we know about Gamaliel? Well, we also know he is the one who becomes the teacher of Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. So you can actually thank Gamaliel for Paul's background in the sense that he was the one that educated him. He was the mentor of Paul. And so whenever you read all of Paul's references to the Old Testament, that's a heavy influence from Gamaliel, the perspective that he had, and the knowledge that he carries with that as well. Think about this, uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 33. Much later on in the book of Acts, this is where Paul is giving testimony to who he is. And look what he says I am a Jew born in Tarsus in uh, Cilicia but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So again, he's speaking to Jews here, and as he gives out his pedigree, he throws out there, I am a student of Gamaliel. He knew that would give him street cred being in the synagogue in this specific city. So think about that for a moment. Paul, standing here, in this moment, listening to what Gamaliel is saying. You say, you think Paul was in there when this happened? Yes, I think he was. Why? Because it tells us that when Stephen appears before the Sanhedrin, Paul was there. So we must assume that Paul is here as well. He was there. Maybe even Paul, being an understudy of Gamaliel, was one of the ones that carried out the beating of the apostles here. Imagine that dynamic. When Paul actually gets saved and becomes an apostle, can you imagine like walking down the road and you're like, you know, you beat me pretty hard that time. Like that, was, that, that hurt, you know, you, you, were, you, you didn't hold anything back. Paul's like, I, I know, I know, I was misled. But I, mean, I, I imagine that made for some interesting conversation. But we do know that he was here and that he heard these things. And for me, I think, wow, think about Saul. Who became very zealous for the purity of the Jewish people? He began overseeing persecutions and executions, almost like he didn't even give regard to what his rabbi had said in this moment. Later on, before Paul has his conversion experience, it says this about him in chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Almost like he's in blatant disregard to what his rabbi said. Hey, if you go after these people, you might find yourself fighting against God himself. Look what happens next. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you, what does it say? Persecuting me. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul found himself fighting against God. Why? Because he ignored the wisdom that his own rabbi shared with him. Don't you think in the back of Paul's mind in this moment, as he comes face to face with Jesus and realizes he is Lord, in the back of his mind, he hears the words of Gamaliel, you will find yourself fighting against God himself. Wow. I think Luke is actually setting us up for this moment that's coming a little later. Back to our passage here, Gamaliel had the power and the position here, and we know it because he orders the apostles to be removed for a moment. Number one... That shows that he's got power. For someone to stand up and say, hey, have these men escorted out for a moment. Not just anybody can stand up and do that in the Sanhedrin. It shows you the influence that he has. And he said, hey, it's only going to take a moment. It's only going to take a moment for me to convince them to do what I want them to do. And so he's pretty confident about his position here as well. So then he began his argument to persuade the council. He says, consider carefully what you are about to do. What are they about to do? Death penalty. They're going to have these guys killed. He's like, that might be too much of a response. You might be a little bit out of control here. Isn't that ironic? Again, it's kind of like the table's being turned. The ones who are out of control are the ones you would think would be in control. And the ones that you would think would be out of control are the ones that are in control, the apostles. Again, Luke just tells us how the kingdom of God, when it erupts, it turns the tables over. Gamaliel then brings a heavy dose of reason into the situation. He says, if you do this, you may only increase this movement. You may give them a lot of sympathy with the people and the people may revolt. Hey, he's got a good point here. What have they been doing? They've been like healing people. They've been out preaching this gospel. They've been setting people free and with a powerful demonstration of God's support in this. And what have we seen? 3,000, 2,000, Number daily, the ones who are joining on with them. So this movement probably at this point is around 10,000 people who have already joined this movement. Now you think you kill these disciples, whether they believe they're from God or not, you got 10,000 people who now their loved ones aren't being healed. There's not a display of God and the power of God happening anymore. There's gonna be a revolt against these people. This is great wisdom for him to bring this perspective into the situation. So he says, why don't we just let God be the judge of this? If he's not in it, it's going to fizzle out. And then he goes on to give a couple examples of what he's talking about. Look at verse 36. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in those days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So these are all examples of messianic movements. The two that he gives here are documented in Jewish history, and they are both people who claim to be the Messiah. They said, hey, I am it. I'm the one that God has sent. Follow me. And they got a mustering of people who would follow them, and they all... Try to advance their cause and they all ended up dying. And when the leaders died, the rest of them scattered because there was no one to rally around. Now in this moment, I don't think that Gamaliel is talking about killing Peter in this happening. I think he's referring to the fact that we've already killed Jesus. So let's just wait and see. Because him offering this actually is more support for killing the apostles if he thinks they're the leader right? Because in both the situations, the leader dies and then those who follow scatter. So what he's saying is we've already killed Jesus. These are his followers. If this is not of God, just like all the rest of them, this will come to nothing. It may just be a moment of swell and then everything's going. Just give it a moment because if it's not of God, there's going to be this this infighting that's going to separate the leadership. It'll all go to nothing, But if it doesn't, you might find yourself fighting against God himself. Why does he think that this might not be successful? Because he has these other experiences to go to. What do we know about these? Were they successful? No, they were not. Why? Because God was not in them. It was a movement of one zealous man and those that he could convince to follow him. They were movements of men and only men. And when the men died, the movement died. Now, look how I continues in verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now, again, Gamaliel presents a very simple perspective. Why don't we leave this to God? Why don't we let God be the judge over this? Why don't we let God be sovereign over this? you believe God is sovereign, right? Yes, we believe God is sovereign. Well, do you want to find yourself in the place of God? Do you want to find yourself usurping God's sovereignty and authority and doing something that maybe he is in? So let's understand that God's big enough to fight his own battles. Therefore, we're not called to be a judge in this. Let's let God be the judge. wow. I mean, that's really, really good advice. Was it completely good? I mean, maybe he had some selfish motives in it. Maybe he was kind of demonstrating the power the Pharisees actually have to sway the Sadducees in moments like this. Maybe he was more afraid of losing the support of the people, and if the Sadducees carried out what they wanted to do, they would definitely lose the support of the people, and then they would have a whole other problem. There was probably some selfish things in this, but... I think that overall, this was really strong wisdom. And I think there's also a little bit of irony here. The suggestion that he makes actually flies in the face of all the evidence that they already have. I mean, they're growing in popularity since Jesus's death. The healings and miracles are increasing since Jesus's death. They can't keep these men jailed. They can't even lock them up in a public prison, It is becoming more and more evident whose side God is on. So the Sadducees listened to Gamaliel. They held back the execution at this point, and they insisted instead to have these men beaten or flogged. Look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So now this is about the third time that they said, hey, we don't want y'all to speak in the name of Jesus. How well do you think that's gonna go over? It's gonna go over as well as it has in the first couple of instances, right? We know what they are committed to. We know that they are convinced they are called to be the spokesperson of the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this time, though, they give a little more incentive to listen to them, which is to give them a beating. The beating was most likely a beating from canes, like canes, uh, sticks, rods, uh, not what Jesus went through. Remember, the Romans administered Jesus' beating. This is the Sanhedrin in administering it, it's a little bit different. They did; they weren't known for using leather straps or whips at some time, but not like the ones that the Romans had that had broken pieces of glass and pottery on the end of it. Theirs was just a regular leather whip. Um, but uh, more than likely, it was probably the beating from a cane stick. And so they would literally thrash them, and they would hit them 39 times, back, front, back, front, back, front, b- both across the chest and on the back. Uh, it was a brutal beating. Like we know from Uh, Jewish history, that there were many people who died from this beating. So we're not talking about just getting whipped. We're talking about it is a pretty powerful experience to be beaten like this. Now, again, I think they were making a point. Hey, I want you to grab your attention. I want you to know how serious we are about this. These infractions are not going to be tolerated. You will listen to us. Let's see how well that went over. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that, that the Christ is Jesus. So that went over really well, didn't it? Very effective right there. Uh, they beat them to scare them. They walk out rejoicing. Hey, we were found worthy to be beaten for the sake of the name. And that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We were beaten for the sake of the name. Now, again, you have to pay attention to that. Why? Because that phrase, the name, comes from Hebrew, the Hebrew belief, HaShem. Ha being the, Shem being name. This was what they called or referred the holy name of God by okay? Here's why. Because the Jews believed that the holy name of God, Yahweh, was so holy and so other than them and set apart, the Jews kind of got to this point where they would never say the name of God out loud. So they would just be like, the name. You know the name? Oh, that name? Yes, the name. And so instead, they would say Hashem, the name. And they knew whenever you said the name, you were talking about the holy name of God. Now, again, There's nothing wrong with saying Yahweh. Matter of fact, in all of scripture, God never said, don't say my name out loud. Matter of fact, when he was talking to Moses at the burning bush, he said, this is the name I want to be remembered for, and this is the name I want to be known from generation to generation. So it was the Jews that kind of developed this reverence, and with this reverence, they kind of created this um, this fence around the name, if you will, to not say it out loud because we don't want to disrespect it in any way. But Hashem became the perspective, the name. And I want to show you that Hashem is so different than our name. And Hashem is like the personality of God all wrapped up in his name. And I think that that's pretty powerful there. Now, whenever you get into this, uh, you will see that this is very consistent from Old Testament to New Testament. I want to go back and just show you a couple of passages. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. It says, behold, I send, what does it say? the name. I send the name before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So apparently somehow God's name can go before a person. It can protect them. It can stand in front of them. It can move with them. Deuteronomy chapter 12 verse 11. Then to place that the, then to the place that the Lord, your God will choose to make his name dwell there. So apparently God's name can move with a person going before them or God's name can dwell in one place and stay right there. Somehow God's name can do both. Psalm 20 verse one from the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So somehow the name of God can also offer protection. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke, his lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. So somehow from this perspective, God's name can move around. Can your name do that? I mean, does everybody say, what is that, a fire over the horizon? No, that's the name of Dawson. Everybody run, you know? I mean, we never talk about that, do we? But somehow the name of God is associated with his character, with his power, with his presence, with his protection. It continues. Micah chapter 4, verse 5. For all the people walk in each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now remember, for the Hebrew people to walk is the same thing we would say as to live. So for them to say some people live in the name of their gods, but we will live for the name of our God forever and ever. So the name of God is something that you could live in or dwell in. It's like a dimension or a place that you can choose to be in it or be outside of it in some other name. John chapter 20, this continues on into the New Testament. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life But look at the tagline, in his name. So somehow the name is powerful enough to provide life to people who are dead. The people who wrote about it say, you get life from the name of Jesus. So why does God's name seem to have a mind of its own? Because it's a part of his personality. It's a part of who he is. It's a representative of everything that he is. Well, then what about our current case? I mean, if if God is a place that we can dwell, if God's one that goes before us and offers protection, what about suffering? Oh, listen, it's not short of suffering either. Listen to 1 Peter chapter four. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Listen to verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or any evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Do you see that? Acts chapter 9, verse 15. We'll get to this very soon. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. They're talking about Paul here. He's telling them to go and and minister to Paul. A chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 3 John, verse 6 He who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the father through him. So what he's saying is that somehow, the name of God gets placed on people and that somehow wherever they go, He is with them because his name is with them. It's a picture of his presence. It's a picture of his overall protection, his direction, his guidance. And it talks about what they are living for, why they're going where they're going, why they're saying what they're saying. Somehow this name is pervasive in their perspective of life. They carry it wherever they go. So a Christian is someone who carries the name of God wherever they go. If you are a follower of Jesus, the holy name Hashem has been placed on you and you bear the name of Christ wherever you go. So if this is true, then for some mind-blowing reason, God entrusts his reputation to his church. One of the primary ways that God makes himself known to the lost world is through those who believe in him. Those who've been redeemed, the ones that he's placed his name on. Have you ever thought about the fact that the name of God rests on you so that wherever you go and whatever you do, God is represented in that action? Think about that for a moment. God has set it up in such a way that the world who doesn't know God will look at the people who he has placed his name on and they would learn about him. Why does God entrust his name to his people? Why does he do it this way? I think, again, it goes back to that word I told you to pay attention to and remember the word witnesses. We are witnesses to these things. You know, I hear people say from time to time, I I just... I want to be a witness for Jesus. Well, the truth is you are. The question isn't whether you're going to be a witness. The question is, are you going to be a good witness or a bad witness? Because everything you do is a witness to Christ because you bear his name. This is why the church gets such a bad name in the community. It's full of a bunch of hypocrites. Now, The thing is, that's true. We are a bunch of hypocrites, right? Because we are claiming something we haven't yet attained, but we're moving in that direction. I don't think that's exactly what they're talking about, though. I think it's when we present ourselves as something we have not yet attained. We're not being honest. We're not being transparent. We think we're better than them, and we've portrayed this this arrogance of, like, you know, we're better than you. and, And that should never be, right? We're all saved by grace. No works of ourselves. Not because of anything we've done. Least any man should boast. And so we are all witnesses to who Jesus is. The question is, are we true witnesses? Are we telling the people by the way we live, by the way we interact, who Jesus is? What about when you're returning that thing to Home Depot and they give you a lot of hassle? How good of a witness are you? What about that server who doesn't give you a whole lot of good service? food's bad, the service is bad, and something, everything inside of you kind of boils up, what kind of witness, what picture of Jesus do you give them? I want you to look at the last verse again. I really believe, you, because you can ask yourself, how, I mean, how, am I, how do I learn to be a good witness? How do I know? How do I, how do I practice these things? I think that's what verse 42 is. Look at it. And every day... This is telling us, kind of, he's giving us a little snapshot of what they do, right? So that whole scenario happened, and now he's telling us, kind of like, over a period of time, this is what they were practicing. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, I find that interesting because he, he differentiates teaching from preaching. I think sometimes we just kind of put those two in together. And I would say this, how do I differentiate it? And I think this is a biblical response, but again, you know, I'm, I could be wrong, but I don't think that I am. Teaching is when you are dissecting the word of God for believers, preaching is when you're proclaiming the gospel to people who may not believe yet. Okay, so that's the difference in the two. So when you're preaching, you're preaching to the lost. When you're teaching, you're teaching those who are receptive to hearing and receptive to this message. That's kind of the way, now again, you could probably go further into that, define them much more clearly, but generally speaking, and that's the way I see those two. And I find it interesting that he also gives us two perspectives, house to house and in the temple. So think about this for a moment. Again, the writers of the New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, like to use this this formula of writing—it's a genre of writing called kaiisms. Okay, and a kaiism is basically a structure of how you structure your thoughts. It's not magical. It's not some people like to, oh, it's a hidden message. No, it's not a hidden message. It's, it's kind of like the way we write in English using conjunctions. We make a statement or a phrase and we'll connect things with that by saying and, and, and. But if you use the word but, then you're making a differentiation from whatever you said. Blah, 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 but this is different. Or blah, 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 and this, and that, and that. So we're making connections. So their chaisms are basically the way that they connect thoughts together. Okay, so watch what he does here. And every day, every day would be A, in the temple... B. And from house to house, B, they did not cease teaching and preaching. I I actually did that wrong. Let me show you again. Every day in the temple, okay, that's the first part of it. And then house to house would be like the second. And then there's teaching and preaching, which would be the third and the fourth. Okay, so A, B, B, A. So centers in on that. So think about it this way. The temple would be directly related to that last aspect, which is preaching, and house to house would be directly related to teaching. So I think what he's saying there is that the disciples were both going out to the lost in the temple and proclaiming to the Jews that their Messiah had come, but when people were receiving that, they were also going in house to house, because we know that's how the church began to grow, and in the house to house, they were teaching the depth of Scripture. They were teaching the stories of Jesus, of their own experiences with Him, the things that He taught from the mountainside that they didn't have the benefit of hearing and hasn't been written down yet. So day to day, they're teaching people the depth of belief in Christ, and in the temple, they were also proclaiming that this is the only way to be saved. The reason I even bring that up is because I believe that's a beautiful balance that we still need to strike. We need to make sure that in church that we're not doing just one or the other, that we're not just teaching the word of God so that we have a whole bunch of people who are saturated with the word of God until they're just dripping with it, but they never go out there and make a difference in the world that God's put them in. It's just like we strive for the next Bible study or the next experience or the next conference so that we can go and soak up more, but we never allow the Holy Spirit to use that in the world around us because we've so isolated ourselves from the world. We only want to go to you know, Christian places and, and places you know, that don't offend us, and so we, we've kind of taken ourselves out of that. But then there's other people that make the other mistake. That's all they do. They, they, kind of, they kind of stood away from the church because they're like, oh, the church is not effective. I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna charge hell with a water pistol. I'm gonna, and they go out there and they just proclaim the message of God and they're like saying, get saved, get saved, get saved. And then within their sphere of influence, people are saying, we are, we are, we are. Is there anything else? And that's the reason the church has to have a balance of those two. We have to have a balance that on Sundays, we're talking about things that are deeper than just getting saved because that's just the beginning of this. It's not the finish the, the, that begins a process of sanctification, growing in Christ and learning to be more like him. But, but that then should motivate you to go out into the world and present that message in the places that God has given you influence. You are in places that I can never go. Some of you are public school teachers. The public school is paying you as a Christian to be in their school system. They'll never let me in, for most of them, right? But God's put you there and so as we come together and we dissect the word of God, God has strategically placed many of you in places that I could never go and preach this gospel, but he's put you there to do it. And so we come to this place to be encouraged, to deepen ourselves in our walk with Christ so that we can also be effective out in the world around us. I think this is an emphasize, em, emphasizing both of those. I want to leave you today with a story that happened to me yesterday. Uh... We have a a friend that, um, my oldest son is graduating. So he's trying to figure out which college he's gonna go to. And Alabama was one of the ones that he was thinking about. And so we thought, hey, he needs to be able to go to Alabama game, because we've never been to one as a family. I went to one one time with uh, friends uh, that invited me, but but the rest of my family had never been to a game, never been to Bryant-Denny Stadium. And so um, I have a friend of mine that has these tickets. I knew he had tickets to it. And I just told him one time earlier, hey, this is Colin's senior year. He's looking at colleges. If you ever have like a time when nobody's using your tickets, we would love to have it. Well, he called me back and said, hey, I got this uh, game. Y'all can have all six tickets if you want them. I was like, awesome. What well, was the game yesterday? Which I realize now why nobody wanted those tickets because, I mean, it was basically like Alabama playing mobile Christian down the road. I mean, it's just like it was not a big game. But I thought, hey, the experience and being there and all that kind of thing, it was awesome. So we go to this place, and I've never been before, never had his ticket. So we got the tickets, and he says, it comes with a parking pass. So it actually has a designated place you can go park in this parking lot. We thought, I thought that was awesome because when I went with the people before, we walked like two miles, paid like $50 parking someone's, their, their curb basically, right? And I was like, well, that, at least we have a spot, and I don't have to feel like, eh, you know, is my car safe here? So as we kept driving, uh, Brandy was like, no, you got to take a left here. I was like, this is all like kind of coned off. And she's like, no, go right through there. And I was like, I don't know if we're supposed to be here. So we drove a little bit further and, and then there's no more cars. And I am telling, I was like, Brandy, you got this messed up. The stadium is right there. Where's, she goes, no, it says right here to go to this little place. And so we followed it. And you know, we parked right at the gate. I mean, we pulled in, parked in a parking spot, got out of our car, walked literally 50 yards and walked in the gate. Walked in the gate and they directed us to an elevator. We got in this elevator and we went up to the sixth floor and we were greeted by these people who were very well-dressed and said, welcome to the Ivory Club. I don't know if you've ever been to the Ivory Club, I haven't been, but as you walk to the Ivory Club, I've never been to a stadium where they greet you when you get off the elevator and they greeted us. They put these little armbands on us and they said, come on in and enjoy some refreshments. I was like, refreshments, that sounds like church. We walked in, these were not refreshments. This was chicken biscuits, grits, eggs, bacon. And they were like, this is because it's an early game today, so we have all of this, but the lunch is over here. Hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken, green beans. And then she goes, over here, we have the desserts. And it was cookies, pies, banana pudding, all of those kinds of things. And then she goes, oh, and over here, there's a popcorn machine. It's available all the time. There's also the little, you know, when you go to the gas station and they have the little ice cream, the different kind of ice creams in that little freezer? We had our own. And it was completely full and you could have as much as you wanted. There was also a soft serve ice cream thing. When we walked, because that's like a big old eating area that you could have, had these tables that you sit around. And then we're like, was this where you watch the game? Oh, no, your seats are down here. So they walk us down to the seats. It is all carpeted. Everything is carpeted. It's like sitting in theater seats. Usually when you go to a game, like, just enough for you to fit in it, I could have fit two of me in this seat. I was sitting back like a king. It reclined back. I was sitting on the 45-yard line looking down at the field at the most perfect level you could possibly be on. And we had six tickets all sitting right there. And the whole time, you just go get whatever food you want. You don't pay for anything. It's all taken care of. You just eat until your heart's content. And as we were sitting there looking down, my daughter, 10 year old daughter, says, Dad, look at those people down there suffering. She was pointing to all the people down there who were sitting in the regular seats. (laughs) They were sitting on like, you know, metal bleachers and they were so excited. And I was like, oh my goodness, I have so much to teach her that this is not normal, that this is not the place that you usually go, that this is not the experience that you should expect when you go to a football game. Because literally from where we sat, the bathroom was like 10 feet behind us. So you go to the bathroom anytime you want. Y'all ever been to a football game? You know, like, you got to plan a bathroom trip. Like When you go to get food, you just got it. When you go to food and you're sitting regular, you got to go wait in line, right? And so I started trying to explain to her. I was like, no, this isn't normal. This is like, you know, really nice. And this is like special people really get to come up here and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, as I was preparing this message early this morning, this thought came to me of, I wonder if... That's what people in heaven think about us. I wonder if it's the ones who really get it that they look at us and think, look at those people down there suffering. Why are we suffering though? I think they would say that we're suffering because we don't get it. Because we settled for metal bleachers. Because I just, I I joked to my son, I was like, we ought to shout out to them. If you would have just worked a little harder... You could have come sat up here with us. Uh, But I thought that would have been rude. And since it weren't our tickets, it would be like not a good, probably wouldn't be a good fatherly lesson to teach your kids either. But, you know, the picture I had was whenever we get to this point of really arriving in the kingdom of God, will we look back and go, man, I settled for metal bleachers. I settled for bad seats. I settled for what was there. Because as you look down, all these people are hey, they were totally oblivious to us sitting up there looking down on them, right? They were totally oblivious. They still had a good time, but they didn't know there was something that was so much more. And I wonder that as we live in the kingdom of God, if we don't realize that there's so much more that we could be living for, and that sometimes, this is where the illustration falls apart, sometimes that includes suffering. Sometimes we avoid suffering because we think that can't have anything to do with my relationship with God, or I avoid suffering because I'm entitled to better than this. I'm entitled to better treatment, to better service, whatever it may be. But in reality, what we're doing is settling for less than because we have forgotten that the the reward is later, that the reward is something that comes after this life is over. That's when we experience the bliss. That's when we experience the blessings. And I wonder how often maybe God looks from heaven and goes, man... They're settling for less than what I want them to have. And I think that that's a picture that we should always keep in our mind, that just because we think of something as not being fair, God might be using that unfairness to grow you, to teach you something about who you are, about who he is. And remember, there's nothing in the scripture that says that you won't suffer or face adversity. Matter of fact, there's a lot in scripture that says you will do these things. So today I want to leave you with the same question I started you with. What reason do you find yourself suffering for? What is it that causes suffering in your life? Is the major cause of suffering in your life mistakes that you've made or because of your commitment to Christ? Now, again, we're all going to experience suffering because of mistakes that we've made because we're not perfect people. But at some point in following Jesus, there should be some suffering in our life that comes directly from our faithfulness to do what God's called us to do. Don't avoid that. It is for us to embrace. Let's pray. God, thank you for a word that reminds us of your faithfulness, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Lord, I'm just reminded of the beauty that you have promised us when we arrive in glory Lord, there is a feast that we're gonna sit around the table and enjoy with you. There is the bliss of being in your presence for eternity. There is the, the, the satisfaction of knowing what it was we were created for and to experience it to its fullest degree. But we don't have that to its fullest until we see you face to face. And so, Lord, help us to hold on to the things in this life that you have given us, but help us to hold on to them loosely, knowing that we're here today and gone tomorrow, knowing that the fulfillment of our life is never fully realized here, it's fully realized in your presence and so, Lord, you told us, you warned us that persecution would be our lot in life, that we would experience this, that if they hated you, they'll hate us. That if they persecuted you, they will persecute us. And Lord, I thank you for a, a nation that up to this point, we have experienced incredible freedom. But I think we all see that these things are beginning to evaporate as not only our leaders, but the culture as a whole has turned away from you. Lord, we've got to stay faithful. Lord, we've got to be willing to embrace our lot in life. We've got to learn to find protection in your name, healing in your name, and be willing to suffer for that name. Lord, may we be used as a shining example of who you are. May we, in the places that you've given us, the sphere of influence, may we image you in a way that makes the world hungry for something that's real and forever, eternal, satisfying. God, help us to image the way of the kingdom. We ask this in the name that's above every name, Jesus. Amen.